talking to uh, Dr. Sarah Sarkis today. Uh, Sarah and I know each other because we, we went to college together. However, we've had the chance to kind of reconnect virtually, and uh, I'll, I'll share a little bit about her background here. She is um, a, uh, she has a, a wide range of skills. She's a licensed psychologist, a writer, and a performance consultant. We actually have that in common, and she lives in Honolulu, Hawaii, and what's, what's sort of interesting is that we have a variety of things in common. Uh, we're both from Boston. We went to the same college. Um, we both moved west. You moved much farther west than I did. We were braver, but yeah. <laughs> and we both have boys who are single, single kids. And um, I think we actually go to the same yoga chain. <laughs> so many random, random connections. So funny. Yeah. Um, but she's fascinating and uh, and a very good writer. So I'm I'm really excited to talk to Sarah today about the concept of romantic love and really what that does to your brain and to your body. Um, Sarah. I think it's, I don't know if we've seen each other at reunions, but I think it's been a really long time since we've seen each other face to face. Like it might've been senior year in college. It has to be because I haven't attended a single reunion, unfortunately, even though I love Georgetown so much. I, yeah, I hear you. Well, we can just imagine that like Shoop or Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls is playing yeah. in the background. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh-huh. So, so yeah, let's go ahead and, and jump into this. Um, I'd love to sort of start at a, a very high level and allow you to dig down. What do we know about the neurobiology of love? First of all, thanks for having me. It's been great to reconnect. We do have yeah. a number of very interesting overlaps. And this is a great topic, so yeah. uh, I hope it's interesting and fun to the listeners. So, what we know about love, it's sort of in this gray area where we know a good deal, but also know very little. And that that sentiment sort of echoes lots of things when you start to involve trying to understand the brain. Love is a multifaceted phenomenon. It's one of the most studied human experiences, and it impacts us from a neurobiological standpoint, very similar to substances like cocaine and alcohol. So it's a really powerful human experience that can be intoxicating, euphoric, distracting. It has all these sort of hallmark features. And the other really interesting thing about love is Scientists believe that it's, um, it is basic to our nature. So when they study most societies or, or the societies that have been studied, the vast majority have something called love. When you talk about the brain's response being similar to drugs and, and alcohol, um, does that mean that, that certain parts of the brain that shouldn't be stimulated or aren't normally stimulated or shouldn't be stimulated for a certain period of time are? Well, I don't know about shouldn't, right? Because the brain just sort of is this machine. So 
whatever it's being pointed at, right? And if passion is what it's being pointed at, it's going to respond the way the wiring is designed to do it. You know, later we'll weave in how psychology plays in where there's sort of much more free will involved. But really, you're just at the mercy of how this is affecting you along with all the other sapiens that came before you and will come after you. So, yes, when we look at a lot of the super interesting brain stuff, it got a hit of adrenaline, so to speak, when the fMRI machine came out. So the functional MRI, that's the dominant imaging technique used now in neuroscience and like, you know, neurocognitive sciences. And it basically measures blood oxygen levels in various regions of the brain. And it allows you on a picture to see what parts of the brain have been activated. Because the brain is, you know, it's an intricate circuit of systems that have integrated pathways or non-integrated pathways if they're not connected. So that's what the fMRI really allows you to see. And so, you know, for somebody who's studying the brain, that was like a kid in a candy shop because suddenly they could do so many more studies and start to try to understand how the brain is perceiving your human experience. And so how does it show up on the fMRI? Is it that it's that the parts of the brain are stimulated or they're under stress? What is it? What does that mean? So it's interesting. On the fMRI, although I'm no expert, but it's basically when it's stimulated. Now, I believe that it's color coded to show like high stimulation versus less high stimulation. So, but it's whenever there's an, an integration of different parts of the brain that will show up and that it shows you this picture. The interesting part though with the, the things that showed up for love is that it illuminated this area that scientists call the reward circuit in the brain. And the reward circuit involves different areas, hippocampus, amygdala, lots of different areas. And there were several of those areas heavily activated in a brain that was in love. And that is very similar to the fMRIs we have of people when they have taken cocaine and alcohol. That reward, I know, isn't it fascinating? And that, so that reward circuit gets just completely ignited. It's why love becomes so intoxicating. It is actually intoxicating. <laughs> it is, yeah. it's, it's actually happening to you. So you, and it's, you know, when it's happening, it's so lovely, right? It just has this like totally euphoric, lovely feeling. And then now because, because they were able to identify that that reward circuit was clearly or, or elements of the reward circuit, large sections of the reward circuit were being activated they're able to better understand the cascade of chemicals that are actually happening in the brain. And so that also explains like, like a ton of the old phrases like love is blind, you're a fool in love. Those phrases can actually be explained by the chemicals that are released and the areas of the brain that are activated when you're falling in love. 
this is is crazy. So we're talking about all components of love, right? Both the 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 experience, where we're sort of focusing on the experience of of falling in love or, or passionate love. But then there's this other side of love, which is really around betrayal. So do people who are experiencing betrayal or, you know, however that looks like you're ending the relationship, somebody else is ending the relationship, do they have any of the same symptoms as people going through withdrawal from drugs or alcohol? You know, it's really interesting. So it's a great question. That phrase, it's a thin line between love and hate really does exist neurologically because what scientists have been able to, they're just sort of beginning to understand this. And I should say about hate, hate, or if we call it hate, betrayal, anger, hurt, right? Sort of distinguishing it from what people might consider evil, right? We're, We're using this as... Uh, the spectrum of human emotion, right? And for neuroscientists and for a psychologist, there's nothing pathologic about hate in and of itself. It's how we react to that feeling that often gets us in trouble and causes injuries or in the worst case scenario, you can see crimes happen, crimes of passion, right? Mm. So whereas we sort of reserve evil as this other thing. And you'll often notice that scientists just sort of don't talk about evil, really. I mean, there's a handful of people, I think, over the years who have really tried to look at that and and parse it apart. But, you know, for the purpose of this, we're talking about hate being something that's very relational. It's usually like the people that I see, it's often that it's after years of really fighting for the love and they, you know, are separating or there's been an affair and there's all kinds of things that have to heal in the wake of that. And it turns out that there are regions of the brain that are very similar in love and hate. But what's really, really interesting when I started to dive into this is the part of the brain where it's different than love. Because it's that that will make a lot of sense. So I'll, I'll just sort of tell you about that part of the brain. So there is in love, when you are in love, and there's lots of different stages to love, but when you are falling in love in particular, and then the sort of stretch of time, maybe up to a year, where your brain is still feeling all the effects of being passionately in love, as you said, which is a great description. There's a region of your brain that draws judgments and has fear of social judgment. And in love, that is dimmed or it is deactivated. And in periods of time and hate, it is not deactivated. It is still active and it's it's working. So it's making judgments and reasoning. It's actually still in contact with that part of our cerebral cortex, whereas in love, it's much less active. That's why the phrase like, you never know somebody till you're divorcing them, because this part of the brain allows us to be very calculated 
And so you can often see that if like you're a fool in love, on the other end of it, people can be ruthlessly calculated about their actions. And that is governed, at least in part, I'm sure that traumas overlay on that, right? How somebody react, how somebody behaves in response to that brain stimulation. But at a neurobiological level, it's in your brain to do that. You're wired to do that. I understand the phrase, like, you don't really know somebody until you are divorcing them. But is that true? Like, are you really acting as your normal self when you are experiencing hate? Or are there, as you mentioned, there's sort of a heightened level of judgment. So perhaps you're finding more faults or you are more acutely aware of somebody else's actions and how they impact you negatively. You know, is that, recognizing that that's not really baseline, is that sort of out of the bell curve of behavior or am I not thinking well, it's a really that? it's a really good use of the word baseline because I forgot that I wanted to say <laughs> I wanted to say this both love and hate from a neurologic standpoint are stressors on the brain they love feels amazing right and they share so many qualities right they're sort of all consuming they can cause all kinds of physical symptoms inside of us, racing heart, sweating. Again, the same obsessiveness can show up. So the brain experiences them as a stressor if we define stressor as a protracted period of intensity inside the brain, right? Hate has the same, it has the same intensity of passion. It's just directed a different way. So I think from a neurobiological standpoint, I'd call it a draw. I don't know that I could say there's any normal. It's all just sort of happening chemically. Where our psychology comes in is really fascinating. And that's what I see unfold in my office because how you self-regulate when you feel these feelings, these intense feelings of love and of hate has a lot to do with your history, how you were raised any traumas you experienced and trauma is what happens. It's not what happens to us. It's what happens inside of us. So that includes everybody. We've now like taken out that it has to be a big deal trauma in order to impact you. It doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm loath to even speak of normal, right? Cause please help me find that somewhere. <laughs> first of all in myself, but I know what you mean. Now here's a really interesting thing about decision-making. If you just look at the brain in love and you just look at the brain in a period of heightened betrayal, let's say, the brain in betrayal is actually, from a neurologic standpoint, better prepared to make good decisions than the brain in love because that judgment area is dimmed so much during love. It's not that it's activated per se in hate. It's just not deactivated. Right. Okay. So we aren't, we aren't able to judge someone accurately or as accurately as we might if we weren't in love. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, which has all these, you know, 
good impacts in terms of maybe how you should conduct your life <laughs> when you're in those early stages. I know, and we make major life decisions from this place of love. But if you really stripped back just the neurobiology of the two experiences, they're just two. They're two human experiences. They're the same coin, opposite sides, right? And if you really just strip that back, you probably are a better decision maker in terms of calculation and clarity when you're facing the enemy versus falling in love. That being said, right, we're never just our brains. This is like the age old thing about like the mind and the brain and the body and the whole connection, right? We're a whole vessel. So the entire vessel comes to the experience of falling in love. And that's really where my practice sort of intersects with this world um, of understanding these human experiences. Because I sit with people all day long uh, in various states of, you know, self-love, other love, falling out of love, re-falling into love, parenthood. So... Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. So it's it's sort of counterintuitive to I think how society generally thinks about it. We often think about people going through divorce and sort of that's the extreme example as being quite malicious towards each other and making decisions that are intended to hurt one another. That's the calculation. Yeah. um, Whereas, you know, when we're in love, we're sort of willing to overlook things and, or when we're falling in the early stages of love, um, overlook things. It's just, it's very interesting to hear you say that perhaps we're actually seeing the world more accurately in some ways uh, when we're, when we're at that stage of, of betrayal or hate. Yeah. You know, it's a different lens of perception, right? Right. And, um, whether or not it's sort of kind of accurate, I don't know if I can even go there now that I sit in all these nuances hours a week, right (laughs) now at 44, I'm like, Oh, I see how nuanced this whole thing is. (laughs) Um, but it's definitely a, it's, it is the flip side of the perception you previously had. And when you talk about people being sort of malicious or they come with like vengeance and they, what they come with oftentimes is hurt and they come with grief. It comes clothed in divorces often, you know, through the legal system and the, and the financial system. That's what we leverage to show it. It's very calculated. And that is that part of the brain that I am talking about. You can be very calculated and very, malicious if you want to be, because that part of your brain isn't deactivated. It's really the the most striking difference between the two brains, brain in love, brain not in love. What I'm hearing you say is that trauma, and this is like embarrassing because I'm so ignorant to the science around this, but the trauma actually impacts the way we produce chemicals in our brain. Yes, 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 exactly. You're not ignorant at all. Um, Exactly. And a lot of the really interesting stuff coming out right now, um, we can thank the VA system and our veterans. We're really starting to have an understanding at a much deeper level. And football. Football's taught us a lot about how, like, head trauma in particular, you know, and 
then how that cascades into our psychology. But the veterans, we've really got to see like what PTSD um, does to the brain and it, it changes the brain. It changes every facet of how the brain then absorbs, synthesizes, comprehends, and expresses itself. Wow. Can you walk yeah. us through the some of the specifics of the chemical reaction to love? Yeah, sure. So, okay, so this reward circuit and this stuff fascinates me because it's like it it is textbook. You can as I say it, you will remember exactly feeling this way, you know, when you were falling in love with your last favorite suitor. My husband. <laughs> yeah, good. I don't, you know, I don't like to presume. We're, we live in a modern time sure. if we've, you know, so. Uh, I mean, it was a okay. while ago that I felt like, you know. <laughs> yeah, you've moved from passionate love to what scientists call compassionate love. Right. And in, during and during that chapter, we'll get to the chemicals that are um, mostly at play and why they're so different than when you were falling in love. So for this reward circuit, the first chemical that the brain gets flooded with is dopamine. That's our feel-good neurotransmitter. If any of your listeners have ever done cocaine, that's what your brain is getting flooded with. It's why you experience in love and with drugs. And for a lot of people, alcohol has this effect in the beginning before it becomes a depressant. Um, but dopamine is a neurotransmitter that gets the reward circuit humming. It primes it to get it to get the engine rolling. It is related to feeling high and euphoric. This is why when you're like first falling in love, you can like sustain yourself on like a slice of pizza <laughs> and a glass of wine for four days and never leave the house with the person. Right. This is all dopamine. Um, in those initial phases of love, cortisol from our adrenals are also released. This is how we know it's a stressor. Cortisol is always released as a stress hormone. We know that from the research with PTSD from our veterans and other people who have really shared their brain with us to better understand it, who have gone through significant traumas. So cortisol is released in high doses. And at the same time, serotonin is depleted. This is why in those initial phases of love, when you feel totally obsessed with the person and you cannot stop thinking about them, that's low serotonin. So all these chemicals are sort of entering our brain at the, at the same time, we are also releasing these two bonding hormones, oxytocin and vasopressin. So oxytocin is sort of gotten a lot of airtime with breastfeeding and that sort of the mother hormone, right? Right. Turns out men release it too, not as heavily, but they release it and have it as well. And it's also very bonding for them. Skin on skin contact, sex, like I said, breastfeeding, all of those activities help our brain release oxytocin. And then, so oxytocin is largely associated with bonding and vasopressin, which I knew much less about till I started to be curious about it, is related to monogamy. Mm. So it's released and it bonds us sort of towards monogamy. 
Which is so interesting because I feel like from an anthropological standpoint, we've moved more towards monogamy, uh, which sort of begs the question, like, were we not producing as much of that before? Or <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And when you think about monogamy, I feel like a concept like monogamy, I love this concept actually. And like, I think Esther Perel is having like beautiful conversation about this. And then of course there's like millions of podcasts that are looking at like plural relationships and stuff like that. You know, when you've been a shrink now for like 20 years, you sort of see it all, right? You see all the different spectrum of what works for people in long-term partnership. I often think too, we cannot tease out monogamy from the pressures of like modern society and religion. Mm. I think if you like stripped a lot of where sort of monogamy, partnership, marriage, and religion kind of converge, we might get a better baseline read of what everybody would be geared toward from a purely anthropological standpoint, right? But we have all these modern structures and they are under significant flux. Like monogamy and marriage in particular is in a bit of a PR free fall. Mm. (laughs) It's not having its best day, right? The statistics tell us it doesn't work more often than it does. And it's really hard when it does, although worth it, right? This compassionate love that you shift into where you have much more of the bonding and the monogamy hormones than the high passion dopamine stuff. But it's really hard. It takes a lot of work. And so people are redefining what that looks like in very interesting and progressive ways. So it's it's interesting to think about the interplay of cultural norms and pressures and trauma and how that then impacts chemicals. I don't know that you have the answer to that, but it's just sort of, it's fascinating to think about the interplay there. Isn't it? Yeah. And it's so complex when you really tease it apart like that. You realize how complex it is when we talk about this thing of like somebody's psychology. It is so multi-layered and the component that gets expressed as our behavior, right? Our behavior in love, you know, we are a whole creature. We are not separate little organ systems and it is super complex. I think it is the most fascinating journey ever to try and understand one person's psychology deeply and to try to have them understand it and be willing to sit still in it. Oh, yeah. I think it's super, super fascinating. Yeah. But culture, all, cul- all the layers of culture, family culture, your, you know, the culture of the place you live in, the culture of whatever relationship you have to spirituality, if at all, even atheists are shaped by the belief that there is nothing else. So all of it shapes us. In, and it, it is shaped by and shapes our behavior. It's multidirectional, right? So your brain influences how you fall in love and your life experiences shape how your brain experiences love. It's actually horrifying now that I say it out loud. <laughs> it's a wonder any of us can wiggle. No, <laughs> no it, it, it's interesting. You had mentioned cortisol 
earlier. And I know that like if a kid is having a tantrum or, you know, if you experience like high levels of, um, I don't know, frustration, right? The cortisol levels go up. Is that right? Yeah. So cortisol is released from your adrenals. And I have a whole essay on my blog about the adrenals. They're actually a very important piece. And I have found universally the way that it's played out in my practice and certainly in my own life is anytime I start to hear a patient or, you know, if I'm working in a corporate setting, if I start to unfold group dynamic that orbits around burnout, feeling burned out, feeling like you're, you're just constantly behind the eight ball. Um, you usually have adrenal fatigue. So cortisol, you know, it's supposed to be sort of regulated throughout the day, but it can easily get triggered on with trauma and it can stay on and really sort of burn your adrenals out so that later in life down the road, you know, when you're young, you're so like supple. They're so forgiving. Till like 24, your body is like the most forgiving vessel on planet Earth. <laughs> but you know, after that, all those those little insults and injuries and any of the big ones for sure, uh, they add up and you'll start to see it with adrenal fatigue. Now, if you listen to guys like the, the men and women in functional medicine who are really starting to study adrenal fatigue and how it impacts for women, like your hormones and PMS and menopause and for men, because there's a very real thing, men called andropause. You're all going to go through it. Um, yeah. It ain't just the ladies no, just, anymore. Just for girls. Now we know about it. What is it? Exactly. Yeah. Well, you'll have to tell us about what that is as you're talking about this. Yeah. And what it looks like psychologically. It's super um, interesting. It's really common. It's a normal part of sort of the, 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 the journey from the cradle to the grave. So, but cortisol, um, interacts with all of these these systems and these functions in our body and it really really impacts mood it leads to because it has a relationship with serotonin right as you have high cortisol you will see serotonin begin to drop it's a seesaw um, and so you're always going to see sort of worn out tired burned out you you'll see this obsessiveness so um, in depression, you'll often see that when people are really struggling with, you know, what psychology calls depression, which I don't actually think is very helpful to just label it that, but there we have it. So we'll call it that. Um, you'll often see people, they get sort of perseverating on certain things, usually negative, usually something in their past. That's all low serotonin. It's all regulated by these, these chemicals in our body. And your psychology influences it and your thoughts influence it. That's why, you know, a lot of times you work with people around cognitive behavioral techniques to try to help reshape the thought process. I'm still reeling with from your use of the word persevering. <laughs> Perseverating. It's one of my favorite. It's <laughs> a good one. You know, yeah, wheels spinning, not moving forward, Ru just over. Ruminating, and another over way of saying that. Yeah, ruminating has like a, has a similar, but perseverating is like slightly different. Although the nuance sort of eludes me, I think I wrote about the difference of them on my blog too on deconstructing anxiety <laughs> yeah. when I was having a more lucid moment. <laughs> That's fine. Um, but yes, similar, yeah. similar. 
this is awesome. So let's let's get down to like the tactical stuff. What that what, what okay. can people do to kind of empower themselves or influence their own growth and development and maybe even make themselves feel a little bit better if that's even possible during during love or betrayal is there is there anything that we can as humans do to manage that period of time okay so my general spiel on on sort of that part of it is this look love is so intoxicating that why would we ever want to regulate it? It's like one of the great human mysteries, right? Of like how it is that we have these experiences and we try to figure out like if other animals have it, right? Cause we're just an animal, right? We're trying to figure out like, how do they love? How is it different? So I don't know that you want to change mm. that. I say, enjoy the ride, right? But try as best you can to not like marry somebody in three weeks <laughs> or four months or please know like what I tell my child is like look mom no hands like this is such a fun roller coaster that you're on and you should dive in head first because love transforms us it really like the great loves of my life right like I, my husband and I have maybe one or two others that in my life really shaped me it's because of that cascading of chemicals, right? So we we want people to have that. We don't want to change yeah, that. Yes. I will say I in my practice and in my life, I have known people who marry somebody in the throes of falling in love. Right. And that always has a particular burden to the later part of the relationship when you've now transitioned to compassionate love where you your brain has now returned from the state of the stressor remember love is a stressor on the brain and it's a period of intensity that it cannot sustain so once you've returned from that you know you're now you're discovering things about somebody that you're literally wedded to so you know just wait like if it's that awesome it'll last and just give it some time I will say to my son that I hope it will be a minimum of two years and either 30 and older but that's okay that's just me those are those are arbitrary (laughs) yeah so you know that will make it easier is that just know that this is intoxicating, but it's not going to be this way forever. And you're going to want to see what that person is like through lots of different scenarios when they are not also mutually under the same neurobiological influence. Right. So that's just sort of like practical advice. Yeah. And that's, that's um, around the that, love side of it, right? Like don't. Yeah. Don't, and by the know. way, anybody in love won't listen to it because they can't because that part of the brain is dimmed. Right. Remember critical thinking, thinking and reasoning right. is dimmed. So it's like, you know, you're a fool in love, but yeah. it's, just don't, it's great. Don't buy a house after you've known them. Don't months. buy a house. Yeah. Don't do, don't do things that are going to thing that's going to be hard to put back in the tube don't do until you're you're decidedly not in that that um euphoric phase of love yeah 
That makes a lot so of sense. That, that would be that, you know, with divorce or, you know, the, the, the end of the spectrum where betrayal has happened and stuff like that, there you have a lot of practical stuff that you can do. Um, and even in love, I should say, like there are elements of just being in a relationship where I think the single best thing, and this is not just for job security, the single best thing anybody can do for themselves is get into a practice of stillness. Mm. If that is with a therapist that does maybe the kind of work that I do or some other kind of meaningful work that takes you deeply inside yourself so that it is you sitting in your skin and bones and observing yourself, that will take your relationship as far as any of the other tactics that I'm going to say. But I will bet you, because this is what I find in my practice, that people want to hear anything but that. Right. Isn't yeah. it why it's, it's so common for people after they've gone through heartache or divorce or whatever to jump right into another relationship because a hundred percent, they're trying to get another hit. Yeah. They need another hit of the euphoria and the, the other chemicals and they don't want to be alone. Right. Right. They really, people don't like that feeling of being alone. So are you suggesting that by being alone and sitting with it, we'll actually recover faster? Mm, uh, I had my hedge my best bets on faster. Yeah. Um, but I'll say this, that essentially, I think if you don't, at this in this day and age, with all the distractions we have and all the complexities and the ways that we keep ourselves distant from ourselves, and you are only ever going, your relationship is only ever going to reflect how you feel about yourself because you can't be better at loving somebody else than you are at loving and accepting yourself. It's it's not possible. So we have all these ways we keep ourselves distracted from ourselves, And unless we create, it is not something you find. It's not lost. Oh, I'm going to find the time. You aren't going to find it. It's an action verb. You're going to wake up every day and create the space to be present in your own skin and bones. I tell people do 10 minutes a day, five minutes in the morning and five minutes at night. I'd like it more, but I'll take 10. Right. You can't stay a shoulder length ahead of your own bullshit, for the lack of a better expression. Yeah. And if you can't keep that shoulder, and even then, you're going to be running for the dickens. It's hard as hell because our neurobiology is so deeply wired in us. So how you were raised, the interactions you had as a child, the things you saw before you even had words that brought your neurobiology online, all of that lies inside of us. 5% of it is conscious and everything else is unconscious and it surfaces over time in our behavior, our behavior toward ourself and our behavior in partnerships and at work. So if you don't incorporate this, to me, you are a sitting duck. You're a sitting duck to get injured again. And to injure. And to injure yeah. It always comes in relation, right? Love, hate, same coin, 
opposite sides. So you're going to get injured and you're going to injure. Now we're all going to injure and, and be injured, right? One of the things I always tell parents is this thing about this 30-70, which is hugely comforting to me because I am literally one of the most imperfect human beings that ever roamed the earth. So it's such a comfort. And this is a statistic I can get behind. Research shows that 30% of the time, if you get everything right, you meet all your children's needs, you are a good enough parent. That's all it takes. We are so resilient. It takes 30%. In any other domain, you are a failure. But in parenting, it's it's like a top hitter. You're like a top hitter. And 70% of the time, it's how you repair the injury. So when I say you're a sitting duck, I mostly mean you're a sitting duck that you are going to repeat the patterns of your past. So one question about the 30-70. So that means that if you can meet all your kids' needs and be patient with them and allow them to grow and be in their own pace, that they will not experience trauma or or that's not that cut or dry right right like I get it being a parent you want it to be super certain you're like how far can I take this statistic how can I get my child to be crazy successful yeah (laughs) oh my god it's so funny I know exactly what you mean no but I mean that we're all injured we're all flawed and yet for the vast majority of us, we find our way and we're incredibly resilient despite the fact that life is unpredictable. And the 30% of the time, you know, that's great, but but even observe your instinct to focus on the 30% of the time that you get it right, while the vast majority of the time you ain't getting it right. I mean, life is forgiving. So to me, the 70% is what's so fascinating. So you mean I can fail 70% of the time. And as long as, like I had to this morning, I go up to my child and follow up and say like, hey, I heard you last night. I heard you that I hurt your feelings. And I'm sorry, I don't want to hurt your feelings, right? So I'm trying to repair that I did something that injured him. I'm acknowledging, hey, I see and hear you. If you can be physically close to them at the time, that helps. Remember, oxytocin is released through flesh, contact with flesh. So if you can hold your child close when you're apologizing, you influence their neurobiology that way. So you got, we have a ton of space. And in partnership, it's the same thing. If 70% of the time you can repair the misses, you know, the miscommunications, when you hurt your partner, when your partner hurts you, when you let him or her down, you're doing pretty good. You're doing great, in fact. Not pretty good. You're doing as best can be. I mean, there's periods of time where my ratio must be 10 to 90. Mm-hmm. 10% of the time I'm making contact with good parenting and good wifing or whatever it's right. called, spousing, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, but otherwise, like, you know, back to that thing of like, so what does it mean to be a sitting duck? In, in my practice, what I see is that people play out these intergenerational patterns of attachment. And you can watch it on a family tree. You can just see the branch of, oh, this style of conflict resolution, this style of intimacy, this style of expressing anger. You can see it generation after generation. And if you don't 
begin to be curious about that and deeply curious and really become familiar and observant of how your mind, your brain, and your body work in symphony, you are doomed to repeat everything that was imprinted on you. I just think that's so important because I think it can give hope to people who are experiencing deep pain or sorrow or betrayal or hate or whatever it is, that that, that you do have some lever of control, which is essentially, in layman's terms, like awareness. And if you are aware and cognizant of how you behave, then you might be less likely to injure and to injure in the future. They won't be unconscious, right? Anything we can, you're totally right. Awareness is just another way of saying what psychologists or certainly the way that I think about it is that you're bringing things that were controlling you unconsciously, totally outside of your emotional sight line, but with considerable influence. You're bringing them from the unconscious into your consciousness. Now you have awareness. Mm And it's observation. And the other key thing is grieving. We got to let ourselves feel our feelings. That's why I'm sort of moving more and more away from forced positivity or clearing our mind or this sort of like hashtag gratitude movement. I think it's great. And I think it's really important. But I also know that it is very valuable that people be given space to feel all of their feelings. It is a muscle and you get better at it as you let yourself do it. You really do. And I, and I also, one thing you said that's so insightful of you, there is always hope. And we know that scientifically now as well. We know through the study of neuroplasticity and epigenetics that the brain and this elusive thing called the mind and the body can heal itself. You can change your neural patterns. You can change your emotional patterns and you can actually reverse the the cell at the cellular level. You can reverse disease. And we know that stress is one of the major, major, it is the epidemic of our time. What it does to our bodies, when you think about just what we talked about today, the rudimentary level that I'm talking about it, right, with cortisol and all these neurotransmitters and how it impacts the brain, how that then impacts our body, how that then impacts our thoughts, and then how we behave in the world. There is nothing more important than learning how to optimize the way you orbit around stress. I think it's amazing. And I'm kind of tempted to end on a high note here <laughs> because it's fascinating <laughs> and and it really allows people to know that they that they can impact and influence them, themselves positively, even though it might take a really long time. <laughs> It takes, it, it takes a long time. It doesn't always have to. And I'll say this, it's hard work, but you actually see and feel change, slight changes quickly. Yeah. So, you know, anybody that's interested in this kind of work, because it influences everything, you know, it influences your, your, your functionability at 
at your job and in your career. It impacts how you operate as a parent, the bandwidth you have in relationships. Anybody curious should contact me or somebody like me because, you know, it's really, really doable. And I've been doing it and been doing it with others, right? I've been doing it myself and doing it with others for 20 years. And I've, I have yet to find a lost cause. It's just amazing because you think about the number of people that you've that you've worked with who have had childhood traumas and repeated, uh, it, you know, scenarios where they've been hurt. And even in those situations, um, you can you can make yourself better to some degree. Yeah, totally that is awesome. So yeah, so check out um, drsarahsarkis.com. She writes the Padded Room, and she has awesome. Uh, blog post just really insightful and inspiring and all of her contact information is there um sarah i so appreciate this conversation also i realized that you were really having to break it down for in the layman's terms and that that means a lot to me so i i appreciate it no i loved it i loved the opportunity this was such a great topic it's just so so interesting so i feel really fortunate that you contacted me to do this and it's awesome. I love reconnecting with ladies 20 years later and seeing you as a oh, woman. I appreciate that. Well, I'll definitely have to have you back on. So um, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay, great. 